Recorded live. From Coolidge, Arizona, on April the 24th, 2016. I was looking at some numbers here, and they didn't jive with my brain. Anyway, uh, welcome aboard, everyone. We're happy to have you tuned in. And uh, it's a beautiful day, not too warm yet. We're in Acts, the book of Acts, for this study. We're in chapter 5 and and, uh, exploring the background to verse 20 about the apostles being able to teach all the words of life. And I want to restate that life in the scriptures is all avail- an understanding of life is all available through words. That's the place of words. And when you think about it, that's the, that was the right name for Jesus who became flesh, the logos, the, uh, the systematic use of language is what the word means. Language systematically and if you take that away, um, then there really there there really is no need for language if language is not used as to the pertaining to life. We don't need it. Animals have to have it for survival. A little bit of grunt and this and that, but. Um, we don't need a language like we have if it isn't to to be a correspondent to what God is communicating to us. God is a communicator. He is the he is a, has a ideas. And those ideas have to be expressed in words, and those and those words are then in the New Testament to us are authenticated by the apostles, communicated to us through the written word, and all the words of the life can be contained in words and with words, and that is the only way that that life can be expressed. Uh, You you, you say you don't have to have a language? Oh, Uh, we wouldn't have to have a language for survival if we did not have uh, a message from God. uh, But God is a thinker. God is... uh, speaks, and he has communicated to us, and so he has made us compatible with the ability to embrace his message. Now, what does that put us in contrast with? That's the opposite of what Billy Graham says. He didn't buy that. Well, of course, he's dead now, isn't he? Not, not yet. But see... He, he's a Calvinist. A lot of good things. We're not talking about that. But you need to realize that there is a big difference between what the New Testament teaches and what he teaches. They're not the same at all. He's got God wrong. He's got Jesus wrong. He certainly has a mockery of the Holy Spirit. Entirely paganistic. But you see, if what he believes, and I'm picking him because everybody knows him, don't we? Do we all know who Billy Graham is? We all know who he is. 
So I'm, I'm picking him out, identifying him, not talking about his wonders. He has some powerful qualities. But in the issues of the Bible, he is adamantly 100% contrary to what the Bible teaches on every main issue. We don't know that. And look at the people who are flocking to that because he does have a message of hope. The only thing is the hope doesn't have any basis. Now, here is what I wanted to get to. He believes that we are depraved, right? That every Baptist preacher believes in the depravity of man, or they wouldn't be Baptist. They'd be New Testament Christians. They believe in the depravity of man. And in the depravity of man, man cannot understand the message of the Bible apart from what? The Holy Spirit as a person. So you see, what you think about man dictates what you think about God. And what you think about man dictates what you think about Jesus. Because if man is depraved, then Jesus came, and if he was as one of us, he would be what too? He would be depraved too. And therefore, he couldn't have lived according to the law as a depraved human being. That's exactly the statement from Billy Graham. So he cannot be man. He must be what? He must be God. You see, what we think about God and what we think about Jesus Christ and what we think about the Scriptures and what we think about the Holy Spirit is all contingent on what we think about man. You see that? We've been over that a lot of time. But man said, I mean, the Bible is so clear that if man is depraved, it's because he chooses to be and has moved to that position. He was not born that way. Now, there are tendencies. But God's message is so written that anyone who wants to know what it says has the inward capability of understanding it. For God to give us a message that we cannot understand would be a judgment on who? On God. Why, why, why would God do such a hideous thing as to give us a Bible that we cannot understand? Orders that we couldn't possibly follow. And give us orders that we cannot possibly follow. Yeah. No, but that's not God. But that's the God of the evangelical world, folks. That's the popular. You see, because man has lost their their initiative of being independent, doing their own thinking, responsible for their own lives, they buy into this philosophy that is called Christianity but is no more Christian than anything pagan. The bottom line is it's deadly wrong. And we've got to come out of it and begin to think in terms that God has written a message. He has authorized certain persons 
And when they have a message that is his, they confirm that message with signs and wonders. And once those signs and wonders have confirmed the message, then there is no longer any need for the signs and wonders. So if we continue in the signs and wonder, by that very fact, we are denying the scripture. That it's not complete. So when Peter in our text says that he, the angel gives him the order or to the apostles the order, you go in and you speak, let's read it. Let's read it. Acts chapter 5 and verse 20. Sorry about that, uh, Alex. He was all set up to go to John. You got it right? Oh, you are, oh, you are good. And verse 20, the angel, the messenger, says, go and stand and speak to the people. Now, did the apostle, did they understand what the messenger said? Could he understand the language? It's pretty straightforward. See, what does that do to the Calvinist doctrine? They could understand it. And so it's recorded. We understand what the angel said to Peter, to the apostles. We understand it. We know what he meant. We may not know all the fine tunings of it, but if we don't, it's because we don't have to. But go and stand and speak to the people in the temple. Now, the Baptists believe that you you cannot understand that that language because you already prayed. You cannot understand the things of God. You can't understand his language. And the only way you can is if you have a unilateral, supernatural help. That's because of the doctrine, the first, the T of tulip. What's the first T? Right from the Baptist book of doctrine. And I've got, you know, I've got their books. I went to their school. I know what they teach. What's the first T? The tulip. And what, is that, what does the T mean of the tulip? Total depravity. Every church in, in Coolidge believes in the total depravity of humanity. Every church in town. Why are people flocking to the thing that begins on a false premise? Because with that, they get a false view of the Spirit, they get a false view of God, they get a false view of Jesus, and folks, our business is to straighten that out. And it's dangerous. It's never going to be popular until all of those systems collapse. But the T means total depravity, and folks, that's from their books. That's not our book. That's their book. And then the next one is what? The tulip is you, right? T-U, tulip. That's the that's Billy Graham's expression of New Testament theology. It begins with the T, total depravity. What's the next one in the tulip? The U? Be happy or not to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well... We got a T and a U. Let's come back to the U. What's the L? L stands for 
according to Billy Graham's book, Theology, limited atonement. Limited atonement. That's too, no. That means that, uh, see, that's how they explain some of the scriptures they don't, they don't deal with the grammar in. Because there are some verses that seem to say that, but it's only because they're taking it out of context or they're not understanding the grammar in that verse. What's the next one? T-U-L-I-P. Irresistible grace. Right? The I stands for irresistible grace. That makes grace completely false because that makes grace inoperative and grace is static. A house. Is it operative or static? A house is static. Does it do anything? No, but it makes a place for you. You have to be in that house. When you're in that house, then what that house provides you is protection from the elements, right? That's what grace does. We have to enter into grace. Billy Graham says that when God picks on you because of limited atonement, you cannot resist. And so that's how he builds his invitation. He throws the house on you. He th- yeah, that's right. He, he throws the house at you, and you can't resist it. And so those big rallies, folks, all, and I've been through all of that. See, all those big rallies are all designed to get you to an emotional state to where you feel like God is touching you. That's irresistible grace. That's the doctrine. What's the next one in the tulip? P. Oh, what does P stand for? Now remember, we're talking, this is right out of their catechism. Is preservation once saved, always saved. It's the preservation of the saints. The P. That's the summary of the five the five basic doctrines of Calvinism. I'll come, I'm coming back to that. Because I can't remember. I'm trying to when you guys can't remember it, I can't remember it either. Somebody needs to write it. Maybe Tanya can remember and write it into the... But those, those, are, the, those are the basic doctrines. It's, it's unlimited. And I, I can't remember the right word there. Um, and I, I should, but it just escapes my mind right now. So those are the doctrines. And you see, our view of man, our view of Jesus, our view of the Holy Spirit, our view of God, our view of the church are all conditioned by those five rules of Calvinism and or Arminianism because they're the same. What's the difference? What's the primary difference between Calvinism and Arminianism? 
What's what is? Unconditional election. Oh, there it is. Unconditional election. That's it. Unconditional. Where did you find that? It's on the internet. Baptist tulip, and it popped up. Yeah. Okay. Unconditional. Um, election. Unconditional election. Okay. Okay. It means you really have no choice. God chooses to give some people eternal life without looking for anything good in them as a condition for loving and saving them. Yeah. And that's, and that's Billy Graham's doctrine right down to a T. All of his preaching is geared around those five laws. Isn't that totally the case? The whole argument between Satan and God and, and Job? With, yeah. With well, in case, why we even have a Bible? Why have it? They use the Bible to prove that the Bible isn't true. How nonsensical. <laughs> well, I think that's enough to get the point, right? Well, no wonder the church is the butt of every joke in the world. Well, it is. Yeah. 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 So... Folks, all of that has crept in. We have, we all have some baggage out of that. And I don't mean to pick on anybody, but I, I pick on names that everybody is familiar with because people don't realize what it is that they're really teaching because a lot of what they're saying is fine. But it's all based on a wrong premise leading us to a false conclusion, even though in the middle, you know, we've got some pretty good hamburgers. You know, the sandwich is okay. Well, that's lies, though. There's always a little bit of truth. You can't tell a lie without telling some truth, because nobody would believe it. That's why lies are so deceptive, and why in the Bible, the person who tells a lie receives a greater judgment than the person who believes it. No, no, I mean the other way around. You can't tell a lie without telling the truth. What was it? You, oh, you can't tell a lie without having it woven in some fabric of truth. Oh, oh, okay. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> you see that? You see it. that? Yeah. You you can't just so Satan when he dealt with Adam and Eve, you know, he always said what he said was always true. Has God said? Yeah. Has God said this and that? Yeah. And do you believe that? Yeah, we believe what God said. Well, but that's not entirely true. And so what he did was he put a twist, a spin, on what they said, God said. He put a spin to it. He's a great politician. Okay. So what what I'm emphasizing here, folks, in my latter days, that we must be always cautious that the words of the Bible can be understood. Sometimes we have to find out what they mean, don't we? We have to discover what they mean. That's a lifelong process, but it has to be our intent because every word in the Bible is understandable. Every theme of the Bible we can grasp, and we have to see it in its dispensational position. Or we have, if we try to 
Mix them up. It's like mixing oil and water. You simply cannot mix the new covenant with the old covenant. They don't mix. One is death. The other is life. And it's pretty hard to be dead and living at the same time. That's what I mean. Can't mix oil with water. And we have, you know, and you hear these guys going back to the life of Jesus to find out what we need to do to be saved. And Jesus didn't tell us. How could we possibly have been saved under the new covenant by what Jesus said? It's, that's blasphemy. Why? How could you ask, and how could he have asked anybody to do what we've already found out in the book of Acts? <clears throat> Because he had not yet died. His blood had not yet been shed. And until his blood is shed and he dies and he's buried and he's risen, we have no message until we get to the apostles. There's no answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Now, could, could we be saved like in the same manner as the thief on the cross? Of course not. We'd have, to be a, we'd have to be a thief, we'd have to be on the cross, and we'd have to be a Jew. We don't, you know, we don't... Was, was that ever answered by the Jews? What was that? Uh, was that ever answered by the Jews? What, 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 what must we do to be saved? Yeah, that, they asked that in Acts chapter 2, in verse 40, 37. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And so they went out, and they were three thousand of them were immersed in water that day. It was asked of the apostles. Yeah, we're not asking Jesus because Jesus could not have answered that question because he came under the law, and anything he said about salvation was always in agreement with what? The law. The law. And if you want to go back to what he said, then go back to the law, and you're going back under death. The, the law represents death. Jesus came to eliminate that dimension of the law, and the new covenant doesn't begin until after the death of the testator, right? That's some Hebrews. And there is some churches that are still uh, living under the the law. Yeah, all of them are. All evangelical churches are still mixing the two together. Which reminds me, let's just take a little rabbit trail. We're on. We're taking a rabbit trail off of a rabbit trail. Let's go to Romans. This, this is timely, I think. Let's go to chapter 7 of Romans. This is free. I take this because I don't think we've been here for maybe never. You know, I, a guy needs more than one life. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> a 
pessim- you know what how you you know that you've got a pessimistic cat? He believes that you only live once. <laughs> I, I was telling Greg earlier tonight. Last night when I went to bed, I was sleeping in the office last night, on the couch, and the cat, our cat Singley, a, a Himalayan cat, got up on my belly belly to belly with his nose right in my chin. I've never had him do that before, and I went to sleep with him that way. When I woke up, he was beside me, uh, between me scrunched between the back of the couch. And then I moved, and he got up, and I think uh, he he left. But um, I don't know about that cat. You know, I'm not, I don't quite trust him. I'm I'm spooked of cats a little bit. I don't like them in the woods. You know, cougars are not, you can't, you have to keep your eye on them. All right. And, you know, cats are kind of like that, but I don't know just what possessed him to do that. Stretched out full length, belly to belly. Huh? It is. Oh, that's love. Cats do that. And they, with their face right in your face, they, they do that? Not unless you're preparing to scratch your nose. I kind of think that he's in, you know, preparing to grab my throat. <laughs> that's, that, that's that lack of trust. But anyway, that it was it was fascinating. I go to bed early and I get up early and on Saturday nights so I... But he kind of disrupted all of that. But let's look at Romans chapter 7. Um, do you not know? Verse 1. By the way, Lana, if you discover any new ideas about what our discussion on Thursday night on the touchstone, if you find anything, why, make sure to bring it. Talked to Neil quite a while about that after class. Kind of puts a new perspective on that context from his perspective. All right, verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, now he was calling them brethren because of what identity here in this verse? He's speaking to those who know the law. So that's what establishes in this verse. Don't apply that to some other verse. Every verse has to be determined by its context. Right, Kaipo? By the way, Kaipo is going to breathe our preacher on July the 24th. Hellfire and brimstone, Kaipo. You got any everybody's going to be there to help you. For I am speaking to those who know the law. So who is he speaking to? Those who know the law. And those who know the law, he calls in this verse who? Brethren. Brethren. That's so simple. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. And then he illustrates it in verse 2. 
For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. What's the operative phrase there? Exactly. While he is living. Now, there's a lot of Greek little things in here I'd like to deal with, but that's not why we're here now. I think we can get the 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 the, um, the drift from the English, but if her husband dies, and what's the operative there? If he dies, if he dies, she's released from the law. Then she's released from that law, and what law? The law concerning her husband. The law concerning her husband, and he's not telling us what that is here. Because he doesn't have to. He's using it for illustrative purposes. Verse 2, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, now this is all preparatory for where we want to go. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Is that complimentary? Oh, yeah. That's got to be high up as you can get. You know where we are? Uh, Romans 7. Romans 7. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She is freed from the law. What law? The law pertaining to her husband. He's already given us that condition, hasn't he? Why is her, why is her husband God's law? Well, he's not talking about the law of Moses. He just, he's talking about the law governing marriage. Yeah. So, there's, you know, that's the difference. This would just be the law of marriage. But there'd be a state law of marriage by, by whom? Well, in the scriptures, there wasn't any need to have marriage authenticated by the state. It's whenever two came together, they were by that being together married. That's how simple it was. And according to the law here, what law does that refer to? Oh, this this yeah. is, this is referring to, and by the way, there there is no word in the Bible for husband, nor for wife. It's man. woman and man. And we can check it out, but I'm sure that's the way it is. So it's just man and woman who have made an agreement to be together, and he says when you have. That intimacy. That their agreement is allowed. Is that's there. That's one. That's right. To each other. Confirmed by their intimacy. Now that doesn't mean that it's wrong for the state to be involved. That's neither. That's not the issue here, though. That's the law of the land. That's the law of the land. So the church doesn't. Uh, 
the church doesn't have that law. But it is the law of the land where the church abides. So, if her husband dies, she is free from that law, the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, he is giving that to us as an ever, he said, his audience all knew that. How many sermons have you heard preached on this? Huh? None. But you know, I, I've heard him preach on verses one and uh, verses two and three. But remember, verses two and three are giving us something that we were all aware of. Everybody was aware of in all of the churches. They were all aware of the basic laws of marriage. He's not talking about marriage here. He's talking about the law, not the law of marriage but about the law, the big law. He's painting a picture. Exactly. So, in verse 4, therefore, based on what it is that everyone is cognizant of, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law, and to the law here is referring to Moses' law. Through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised. So if someone attempts to come to Christ under the conditions of the law, what happens to them? And they're considered adulterous. And that's the theology of every other church in the city of Coolidge. Folks, that's not nice. I'm not intending to be popular. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So in order for us to come into a relationship with Christ, what has to happen to the law? It has to be dead. Good. If the law is not dead, you can't come into Christ. I have a book written by Billy Graham on the Ten Commandments, and that's why I brought my little series. Not at all. No, because he believes that you can be, that they're a part of the Christian experience today. See? Now, they can be, but not because they're there, but because they were, they have been administered by, to the church through the apostles. That's when they become validated. Same thing with the word trust. When the apostles bring that down, too. Yeah, when they bring that down in its proper setting to the church, then it's applicable to us or applicable to us. So, you see, you can't come into Christ. And, and you know, I went to school Presbyterian, 
three years. I did graduate work Methodist. That's where I did, did Greek primarily. And you see, with that exposure, I, the, the, the Presbyterian and the Lutherans particularly believe that the law is still 100% intact today. Now, if that is the case, what does this verse tell us? You cannot become a Christian. If you think you're under the law, you can't become a Christian because you can't have you cannot have two. Two masters. If you're under the husband of the law and you still think it's alive, you can't marry Christ. You can't be in both. You see the point? You cannot have both. You're either in the Old Covenant, and if you're under the Old Covenant, either ceremonially or um, um, morally, what they do is they divide the the law up into the ceremonial and the moral elements, right? Well, the Bible doesn't do that. It just... It's, it's a whole. It's all based on the completeness. The sacrificial, the ceremonial parts of the law were there to compensate for the violation of the moral aspects of the law. They're in, not, they're, you can't separate them. They're inseparable. It's the whole law. All of the words given to Moses in Exodus chapter 20 were written down. And that probably includes all of the Old Testament through Genesis 1.1. Now that's free. So if you believe, if in your belief system, no matter how they twist it, what kind of a spin they have on it, you somehow have an identity with the Old Covenant law you are by that eliminated from access to becoming a Christian as long as you hold to that view about the law. You see that? Can't go there. You you understand what I'm saying? Who wants to try to say what you think I said in your own words so that we can all hear it? You don't have to use the same words, but who can who can who can tell us what you think I've been saying? It's, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve the law, and you can't serve Christ. It's, it's that if you're under one, excludes the other. That is, that's right. It's exclusionary. So we can't be under two covenants that are in opposition to each other. I I don't see how. I mean, it's, you know, directed at is still be explaining. Yeah. And the picture that's painted is so clear, you can't be married to two. One dies. That's the only appropriate way to move on from the first. Yeah. There's no... 
I don't see the confusion in it when you just read well, what it says. Yeah, exactly, and I don't either, obviously. But, you know, but we're hung up on that kind of stuff. And when you listen carefully and you learn to be a discerned, you know, a discerning listener, you can pick that up. Hey, David. In these messages. And if you go to TPS. Oh, Mike's got a question? Yeah, well, just, just my observation of what we're talking about here. So when we have churches out there that that believe in the old law, they're adulterous, based upon the first part of this passage in Romans, those are, are adulterous churches. They're they they're serving two masters. They're they're not and and they're in a pretty bad position and yet that's the position most churches take. Right? That is. That's that's true with um, Mormonism, most of the cult, and all of Protestantism that are evangelical. Are you still there, Mike? Yeah, I uh, yeah, and so so that that that's the issue. Like you said, that's the big issue, and and I think that goes doesn't that go right into Re- uh, Revelations where it talks about. The adult, uh, how does it say that? The adulterous churches or something like that. Well, uh, yeah, and all of, them. of course, that like, is not. that's referring to a specific situation regarding um, the Jews in Jerusalem in chapter 14 of Revelation. But it, it's true, and that um, that's where we are. That's that's where Christianity is today, and and that's why we have such a uh, a problem getting. You know, Jesus' prayer in John, which which is where we were going to go this morning, and now we're not. We're almost there, and it's our time is up. That's well, really where we want to go. <laughs> yeah, Alex says he thinks we're getting further and further away from where we were really. Our objective was, but in John 17, he says we need to all be thinking alike, because that's how the unity of God is expressed. Is is how we think. And we're not thinking alike because we don't pay attention to the scriptures. Isn't that it? Then David? Yes. Now, see, this this is the problem we're running into. Just just the big problem now concerning this is anytime you talk to anybody in any of these churches, you know, they're always wanting, because of the way things are today politically and whatnot, they always want to talk about the end times. And you just, you you know, once they start talking about the end times, there's just nothing more to talk about with these people. Well, yeah, I love talking about it, too, because it was 2,000 years ago. And the New Testament, other than the fall of Jerusalem, does not deal with the end times. When it's referring to the end times, it's referring to the end of Judaism, which is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has a time frame, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 20 and 22. That time frame, everything in the middle of that has to be squeezed between those two um, pieces of bread. Everything in the middle has to be squeezed in between there. And it's talking about the end of Judaism, not the end of time, but the 
end of the law, the, and by the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So this verse, though, today we have to wrap up, folks, where our time is gone, is one that you really need to ponder and be sure that you understand and that if you are in any way attached to the old covenant, as long as you have that attachment, you cannot viably be a part of the new covenant. You have eliminated yourself from being a Christian. So what we do then is try to get people to be Christians for some term in the time frame of Jesus because people don't realize that he was under the law as well. And he died under the law to get rid of the law and to eliminate what the law brought into being. So the view of Jesus is wrong. Well, we got to quit. Time's up. And I'm not done. <laughs> I really haven't started on tonight. So today's lesson, we were going to deal with John 15, uh, chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 for uh, developing a background for what happened in verse, five, uh, verse 20 of chapter 5 of the book of Acts. Go, stand, speak in the temple to the people, words. All the whole words of this life. And that's what they did. How did they do it? How did they know the whole message of this life? Is because of what we're studying right now in John 14, 15, 16, and chapter 17. That's what those four chapters of John are dealing with was the enabling of the apostles to do what they are now doing in Acts chapter 5, verse 20. You see that? Got to put the whole thing together. It all fits. But we have to be, we have to be precise. Let's pray. Father, we search for the right understanding. We want you to know that you can expect us to keep our hearts directed toward truth and toward what is right so that we know what to embrace and how to think and how to live. In Jesus we pray. Amen.